With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption in logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com insights. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Daniel Paris, host of the New Books Network. I'm delighted to have as my guest today, Rachel Friedman. Rachel Friedman is uh, on the law faculty at Tel Aviv University, and she's associated with the Safra Center for Ethics at uh, Tel Aviv University. Uh, Rachel Friedman is the author of a, a book that just came out from the University of Chicago Press. It's called Probable Justice, Risk, Insurance, and the Welfare State. Uh, Rachel, thank you so much for, for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be with you. So this is a, a really interdisciplinary book, which uh, I think a lot of our, our listeners will uh, find uh, of note and interesting, challenging as well because it is interdisciplinary. Uh, most of us come up with a particular approach or channel or silo intellectually, uh, and whether it's history or finance or politics, uh, some might be narrow, say, in insurance or statistics. Uh, what you're doing is really uh, bringing all of these things together in a way that I, for instance, someone who participates in the capital markets, uh, I'm familiar with the history of probability. I'm not familiar with the history of the politics of probability, and I also would suspect that the people who have a, a strong political background or political history uh, and uh, social insurance uh, background won't be familiar with the the important role that the developments in probability played in getting to that point. How did you happen upon this and particularly the interdisciplinary approach that uh, led you to uh, produce this book? Right. Um, so you're absolutely right. It is a very interdisciplinary book, more so than I probably anticipated when I started out. But I came to it really, I'm a lawyer and a political theorist by training. I came to it sort of through two separate intellectual channels. One was torts, um, which sparked my interest in sort of the distributive implications of risk. The other was uh, a subject that I take up in the last chapter of the book, namely luck egalitarianism, which is a prominent strand of distributive theory that invokes insurance to distinguish between outcomes for which the individual should and should not be held responsible. And so this sort of sparked my interest in this concept that we know of as risk and why it seems to have implications for thinking about distributive justice. And so in, I suppose, um, typical fashion for somebody who studies the history of political thought, I went to the origins of risk, and that really took me down a path of investigating the history of probability theory because it turns out that those two disciplines, the the discipline of of managing risk and the discipline of of calculating probability are deeply interlinked. And as I discovered, they also have very profound resonance in political life and political discourse. So I turned to the origins of risk, and then I traced it, and as I do in the book, I traced it uh, from its inception really as a concept through contemporary theories of distributive justice. So let's, let's stop there and at least address the first part uh, again, many of the readers, particularly on the finance side, will be hist- will be aware of the history of uh, definitions of risk and the history of probability theory. What they didn't read or didn't see in the literature or the training that they did 
was the follow-on commentary that you discovered with many of the early pioneers in probability about the social implications of risk. So can you, you know, highlight some of that again? We're familiar with the Bernoulli's and St. Petersburg paradox and the statistics and uh, Edmund Haley and uh, the mortality statistics in the German village, the name of which escapes me. Uh, that's kind of standard, but the the commentaries that emerge soon thereafter about, hmm, this isn't just about finance and contracts and risk, but there's actually a social element to this if you begin to think about it. That, w- that was fascinating material. Thank you. Right. So I actually uh, discovered in looking at writers on the early history of probability, including Bernoulli and Leibniz, that actually, even in those very early accounts, there was a distributive cast to the analysis that was beyond the sort of pure um, contractual or um, corrective account of justice that really imagined the creation of a common pool of resources to which an individual is entitled based on her probabilistic expectation. And I I argue that that core, that core insight actually played a very powerful role in in later theories of insurance and in offering an account of insurance as an equitable distributive practice. As we know from many other very prominent and important works on the history of probability and insurance, those two fields did not really converge as quickly as one might have expected. In other words, probabilistic insights were not applied to the practice of insurance as early as they could have been. It really took um, up until the mid-18th century for that to happen. But when it did happen, I argue, when the theory of insurance and the theory of probability met, it was this image of distributive fairness, of the equitable sharing of burdens that really lent insurance and mutual insurance in particular a very powerful distributive cast and allowed it to be conceived not simply as a transfer of a risk for the purpose of individual financial gain, but as a social practice that could promote security and distributive fairness for all of its participants. And again, I think that for the audience here, they're familiar with the first part of what you just said, but the second part wouldn't have occurred to them until you said it. That is, most market participants uh, and even just consumers of insurance think about the benefit it, it derives for them. And they understand the nature of mutuality, benefit for others as well by sharing the risk. But you're saying there's actually a great deal more to it and that the early writers were, uh, and developers of, of the probability and insurance were keenly aware of the political implications of their work. Yes, absolutely. And somebody like Condorcet and many others of his generation were, I argue, pioneers of understanding the promise of probability theory and insurance mechanisms in particular to serve social ends. And and specifically in the case of somebody like Condorcet, the end was to promote the security of the individual and the in particular, the security from the vicissitudes of fortune and the fortunes of the market, especially. And so there you really see the germ of what became the the welfare state idea. And in the case of Condorcet and others like Richard Price and, and Laplace as well in his own way, this 
idea was closely, integrally linked, I believe, to probability theory and their belief in the, in the promise of probability theory to improve social life for everybody. So stage one is a group of individuals coming up with the math and beginning to write about it. But there really is, as you say, there's a delay uh, before, it's really the 19th century, before uh, broad insurance programs. Some of them are mutual insurance programs by uh, workers' friendlies, uh, friendly societies and workers' associations, uh, kind of stitching together a patchwork of insurance that is, uh, if I understood the math correctly, is uh, a very imperfect, uh, you really need large numbers to make the uh, nation in order to get the full benefit. Right. Well, they were Obviously, initially, they were focused on on burial allowances as well as various sickness benefits, um, and in some cases, other types of uh, widows' benefits and and others as well. Uh, just a quick a quick clarification. So the the you're you're absolutely correct that national insurance or social insurance didn't emerge until the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century, first in Germany and then uh, in Great Britain most prominently. Um, what I was referring to is the insurance industry and in particular the life insurance industry. And a lot of the authors I look at actually took inspiration from the Equitable Society in Britain, which was the first life insurance provider to really make use of statistical probabilities. And the reason this is significant is because those same thinkers then propounded a or were the forerunners of a movement to introduce these actuarial principles into the friendly societies. And they they because they really believed that by helping these societies, which prior to this time and, and really throughout the 19th century in, in practice, didn't operate on pure actuarial grounds. They they did they did practice a kind of loose actuarialism, namely by excluding bad risks and policing the behavior of their members, but they didn't apply mathematics in the way that commercial life insurers did. But but people like Richard Price and many of his contemporaries believed that by introducing actuarialism into these friendly societies, they could help realize the benefits of mutual insurance um, for the working classes and and uh, and others who are susceptible to market fluctuations of various kinds. And so, during the course of the 19th century, it's fair to say these new skill sets and abilities, and frankly, the wealth in order to do this. I mean, you need mm-hmm. you need to have some minimal degree of wealth to have a, a, a burial society. It, it this all moves in the same direction of increasing sophistication and the involvement of a greater number of communities through this new knowledge of uh, probability insurance. And again, not just the insurance that you or I or someone else might think of in our own lives, but the, the political side, the social implications. The, as we know, the 19th century was a period of great development and emergence and, and a, a flourishing of, com- how should I call it, communitarian ideologies, communitarian thinking about societies. We have the nationalism itself uh, running rampant through 19th century Europe and the nation state in these larger communities replacing much smaller communities before. So it's all moving al- uh, in the same direction. But again, I, I think many uh, many on the insurance side wouldn't, underst- wouldn't have appreciated the politics and many on the political side wouldn't have understood the, the role that uh, probabilistic and thinking and uh, helped develop these communities, which uh, come to be the nation state, come to be the large insurance communities that, uh, that we see in the late 19th century, by the late 19th century. 
Right, right, exactly. And I think what's so interesting about the role of probability theory in this development, as you very very you know effectively described over the course of the 19th century is that it was also a period of population fluctuation of of geographical mobility and of course economic change and one of the points that i bring out in the book which is not unique to me but i think is very significant with respect to probability in particular is that this way of conceptualizing individuals and managing their security was actually very well suited to this period of flux because we're seeing the breakdown to some degree of more traditional local communities and the need for a kind of solidarity or kind of mutuality that can extend beyond those communities and allow for cooperation and mutual benefit on a slightly more abstract and impersonal scale. And that's precisely, I argue, what probability theory allowed um, both the friendly societies and then later governments to do. Yeah, I'm sure there was a friendly society in Minsk, but the real utility of the friendly society was in New York, where my <laughs> great-grandfather really needed it and, and used it. So uh, what, what mm-hmm. would they have done in Minsk? Who knows? But in New York, <laughs> it was with hundreds of other, not thousands of other immigrants, uh, having that uh, collective entity and the math <laughs> the correct math of that collective entity would have been a very welcome uh, development and, and perhaps very important for those who needed the insurance or the burial benefits, uh, whatever the case may be. So we have all the, the the pieces in place in the late 19th, late 19th early 20th century emerge, and it, it goes on to the nation, national stage, the shift from all of these private endeavors to the national stage. Do you want to describe that and the role of the very, it's led mostly by the, you know, European leading Western European nation states and uh, kind of culminating with beverage in England, but, uh, and before we get to the post-war period. Right. Right. Well, so, you know, I argue that once again, is this the theme of the, the book that thinking about probability actually played a very foundational role in all of these developments. We see the first movement toward a national insurance scheme actually in France under Napoleon III. And there it was very closely connected with the statistics of Adolf Ketley, the Belgian statistician and astronomer. And I argue that this was- Can you particular... spell his name? Because I would never have said Ketley. I, I, I know exactly the one you're referring to, but for the readers who wonder often how something is pronounced, can, can you spell out and then pronounce his name again? Because I, sure. <laughs> I was not aware that that's how it was pronounced. Uh, Q-U-E-T. T-E-L-E-T, uh, Ketley. Um, and uh, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. I, I, I don't mean I to put you on the spot, so. but <laughs> I, I've never said his word before. I've seen his name many, many times in print, but I've never heard it said before. So I just wanted to at least reference someone saying it for okay. that person. Okay. Uh, so I argue that this was a representative of a particular paradigm of mathematical probability theory that was an outgrowth of the thinking spawned by Laplace and after him, uh, Poisson and Fourier, and that um, essentially this view was that the state could really use insurance as a way of tying workers to itself, providing them with a sense of security that would then secure their loyalty and preclude other sorts of movements, especially sort of radical and socialist movements that might undermine political stability. So that, that, sort of paradigm of thinking about social insurance, which I I argue, and and I follow some other eminent 
historical thinkers in this vein, um, was connected with Quetelet and then instantiated on a very, very modest scale by Napoleon III, was then um, really brought to the fore in Bismarck's first social insurance legislation, which is widely regarded as the birth of the modern welfare state in the 1880s. Bismarck famously passed a number of national insurance laws um, that had a similar intention, um, not not simply providing security and securing distributive justice, but also staving off some of the more radical elements that were emerging among the la- within the labor movement. I argue that what happened in Great Britain in the early 20th century with the first social insurance laws that were passed, pensions in 1908 and uh, unemployment and health in 1911, actually represents a slightly different paradigm of social insurance based on a different account of probability theory. And in this case, because even though British policymakers at the time were very influenced by the German example, the rationale for social insurance in Great Britain was rather different from the rationale that Bismarck advanced. And in that case, the policies were, as one would expect, influenced by the new liberalism and uh, a fairly more, I would say, democratic and sort of holistic understanding of the people, which I tie to the emergence of a frequentist account of probability, particularly in Great Britain in the middle of the 19th century. So let, let's stop there and do two comments. First, I, as someone trained in European political history, I think we were all taught uh, that Bismarck's steps were you know, substantially political and his interest in everything that you just mentioned in regard to the Europe, the English example weren't much in his calculations. He was simply trying to stave off, as you say, the socialist movements, and this seemed like an appropriate way to do it. I, I was unaware uh, heretofore, though, of the the thought that went into that even on the German side. But let's let's discuss how the English were different and the, particularly frequentism. It's kind of a difficult concept in your book that uh, is two different approaches to thinking about insuring uh, a probability as it applies to, to insurance. Maybe we can summarize it here on the podcast. Sure. I'll try to do it briefly and without wading too much into the technical details. But essentially, frequentism was a novel interpretation of probability that emerged in the 1840s, and which really understood risk in collectivist terms. Now, I don't mean that in terms of some central economic planning, not in the collectivist sense of the Soviet Union or something more encompassing. I mean it in a very narrow sense, which is that on the frequentist view, it's really not possible to assign a probability value to an individual event. The only meaning that a probability value has for a frequentist, for a true frequentist, is as a description of the likelihood of a class of instances. So in the individual case, really, the answer is, I just don't know what's going to happen. All I can say is, all I can do is make a generalization and apply a probability value to the group. So I argue that actually this interpretation of probability had a significant intellectual influence, especially in Great Britain in that it justified or encouraged a new way of thinking about individuals as part of risk classes in a way that had not been as explicit before. And this, I suggest, was really the way that many welfare states beginning with Great Britain developed. In other words, as a response to the both the classification 
from above and the demand from below of classes of risk-prone individuals who really understood themselves as sharing a risk. And that, I argue, accords with the way that frequentism interpreted probability values. And as a consequence of that, you have a particularly English approach to social insurance and government policy, and you have a slightly different but importantly different approach on the continent. Is that a fair summary? Fair, yes, I think that is fair. I, I, I argue that the account or the approach that was exemplified in Britain became more prominent thereafter. I mean, we, obviously, every country has its own political history and its own idiosyncratic developments. But my suggestion is that this idea that risk classes are both the subjects and the objects of social insurance policy is the one that eventually came to dominate welfare provision in almost every wealthy democracy that we know of as having an advanced welfare state. And as again, as opposed to the perspective from the, that of an individual or from the entire entire society as a whole. So the frequentism is taking these subsets, but larger than an individual, smaller than the, the, the country as a whole. Exactly, exactly. It doesn't necessarily preclude, and here we can actually start talking about contemporary implications if you'd like, because the, the frequentist view, as I understand it, doesn't necessarily preclude risk pooling on the basis of the entire polity, but it rests on either cooperation among distinct risk classes that would encompass the polity or some kind of event that affects the entire population on roughly equal terms. And that's, I think, what's so interesting about our current moment, because we're experiencing, perhaps similar to the Great Depression and the Second World War, insofar as those both led the way to expansive welfare interventions, we're experiencing a moment of shared vulnerability thanks to the pandemic and the economic crisis that's come in its wake or the economic fallout. So um, so I suspect that we are indeed entering into a new, potentially entering into a new era of welfare provision as well as a result. So let, let's circle back though, before we rewrite uh, welfare, let's, before we solve the world's <laughs> problems on this podcast in the remaining <laughs> seven minutes, let's briefly circle back though to what emerged in the 20th century as this comes together, you finally have the statistics, you have the economics, you have a centralized state in all of these countries, and you have uh, from the progressive era uh, forms of social insurance using these different types of statistical analyses becoming standard during the course of the 20th century, and you know, theories of justice uh, emerging even in the post-war period that take a step back from the statistics and don't want a, uh, a, a specific probability associated with an outcome. Can you describe that? Uh, I was fascinated by that. Right. So the what, what emerged after in the decades after the Second World War was also a discovery I found very, very interesting. Because the welfare states emerged on this insurance model and the model of class-based risk pooling, um, and yet at the same time, the movement among welfare advocates after the Second World War, after this cataclysmic experience that seemed to affect everybody on equal terms, was really a, a more expansively egalitarian view. And so the beverage model and especially some of the social theories that emerged in the wake of that model wanted to see the welfare state in much more robustly egalitarian terms. And as a result, there were among prominent thinkers sort of reactions to the insurance 
idea, both on the left and on the right, you see thinkers arguing that what the welfare state is doing is going beyond providing insurance, even social insurance. It's offering some level of basic basic um, entitlements as a matter of right rather than charity. It's meant to provide social citizenship, a, mo- a vision that that goes beyond what the earlier uh, social insurance policies understood themselves as doing. And so you have many incis- incisive commentators from Richard Titmus on the left and Evelyn Burns, sort of a centrist thinker, and then um, Hayek, more on the right, arguing, and then Friedman, he also has an interesting quip about social insurance, but I, I'm not going to remember the citation right now. I don't I don't quote it in the book. But you have thinkers across the political spectrum saying social insurance is sort of neither here nor there. It's, it's neither insurance in the market sense of a contract to regulate a particular individualized risk, risk yeah. nor is it this kind of tool for truly egalitarian or more socialist type of policies. And so it's really just confusing us. We, it's, 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 um, it's a kind of, uh, it falls between uh, the chairs. I, th- I think that's actually, those are the words that Friedman used, but I, I don't want to quote, uh, quote that. Um, so, so you see in the decades after the war, this theme emerging and a sort of concern that the welfare state is, is, is not actually providing insurance and the rubric is confusing, the rubric of insurance. Um, and then I, I interpret John Rawls, who is really the, the foremost thinker on distributive justice in the 20th century, as part of this line of criticism, arguing that the welfare state or a just political system, more precisely, should go beyond providing social insurance with its sort of particularistic distributive entitlements. And so, uh, again, I, it, correct me if I'm wrong, but if I understood your characterization of him, he is less interested in a third decimal point insurance program that allocates to everyone based on these probabilities, that that is not his notion of a just system. Is that, is that correct? So he didn't weigh in explicitly on the question of social insurance. I read him, however, as designing his decision procedure, his social decision procedure in such a way that he essentially insinuates the idea of insurance, of, of solidarity that insurance provides by he insinuates it very deeply into the logic of social relations. And the result would be that the current system of social insurance that we have does not go far enough in promoting the type of egalitarian outcomes that he has in mind. And indeed, later in life, he argued for something called property-owning democracy, which was a step beyond really the capitalist welfare state or welfare capitalism as we know it. And so I think, and, and indeed, in designing his decision procedure, he explicitly jettisons probability values. He he says very, very clearly that individuals behind the veil of ignorance are not aware of their own likelihoods, either objective or subjective likelihoods. They're not allowed to appeal to probabilistic reasoning. And I interpret that in one sense as a very astute commentary on some of the difficulties that social insurance imposes from the point of view of distributive justice, because indeed, thinking about our probabilities might 
distinguish us from other people. It unites us on one hand with those who are similar, but it might also distinguish us from those who are dissimilar. And that could be a problem for distributive justice. And so in that sense, I argue Rawls had a very insightful point about the politics of the welfare state, but I also argue that he might have missed some of the distinctive virtues of social insurance as a distributive regime, particularly given the history as I recount it up until that point. So we're, we're debating the virtues and maybe some of the fine points of of social welfare, the role of government here by, by the mid-late 20th century. You've written this book, and then wham, a, an event occurs which affects rich and poor, doesn't care or know whether you have insurance, does have a statistical, a real nasty statistical bent that is towards the elderly, but it is otherwise fairly uh, non-discriminating. And it has called into question everything that has been built up from Beveridge on to the present, William Beveridge up onto the present, everything that's been built up because the various responses have been frantic, some successful, some less successful, and everyone's frozen thinking about, okay, what what is the proper role here of some sort of nationwide insurance, not in the sense of nationalized health insurance, but of the social uh, support network that, that one should have when a calamity occurs. Uh, obviously, you didn't know this was going to happen when you wrote <laughs> the book, but and the book was finished up, I'm guessing, uh, just as the uh, coronavirus pandemic was making its way through societies. But yeah. uh, w- what has your thinking, if you had an extra six months or the follow-up article, or what has been the main point of, of your analysis as applied to what, what's happening in, in the world currently? Right. So I also have the privilege of teaching courses on the welfare state here at Tel Aviv University. And one of the challenges is keeping up with all of the developments um, in this field since the crisis began. The pandemic certainly seems to have increased awareness of the importance of social security mechanisms, and it also seems to have increased the demand for welfare policy. We've seen a great deal of experimentation and obviously expansion of government spending since the pandemic began. The difficulty, I would say, with this moment is that while crises tend to do this to increase the demand for social protection, the risks generated by a global pandemic and its economic fallout are not necessarily the same as the risk in more normal times of, say, outliving one's savings or finding a job or finding that one's job has become obsolete. So while the institutions of the welfare state have played a very important role in cushioning the effects of the crisis, I think that if we're going to be serious about how to move forward, we need to look at the character of the risks that individuals face and that they faced before the pandemic and that they will continue to face afterwards, particularly given demographic change, technological change, and environmental change. And we need to rethink insurance policies on those grounds. The pandemic causes a rethink, but not necessarily a pandemically oriented rethink to to how how the numbers will play out and how, what social policy or individual policy. And again, speaking on behalf of an individual whose job is risk, I, I as much as I'm aware of society takes risks, uh, society consists of individuals taking risks and trying to ameliorate those risks as they can. Uh, that's you know that, that's still your focus is is the society and individuals as they go through life, not just the shock of 
of of this pandemic. Right, absolutely. So the pandemic, I think, can be a helpful catalyst for modernizing the welfare state. And I hope that that's what what it becomes. It shouldn't be our blueprint for designing the welfare state of the future because there were many policies that were outmoded before the pandemic began. And this kind of once in a generation, hopefully, event um, doesn't necessarily give us all the answers we need about how to protect individuals against the other long-term changes that have been occurring. But I do think that insofar as it creates among the population a sense of shared fate. Um, It can certainly support the demand for social insurance, um, while hopefully also recognizing that different groups of citizens will face different risks and in the long run will demand or tolerate different forms of government action. And it's it's that more fine-grained thinking that we're going to need to do, particularly with regard to unemployment or protection for employment and different forms of non-standard employment, particularly with regard to the elderly population, um, and of course, thinking about healthcare going forward. So all, all the touch points of modern politics, the gig economy, the demographics, uh, and of course, the ever-present issue of national health insurance, all very important. I, you said a once in a generation. I think you meant once a century or longer in terms of uh, the pandemic. I hope that's what you meant. Uh, Thank you. Like, yes. The Spanish <laughs> flu, coronavirus. Let my descendants deal with that in uh, in twenty one twenty after another hundred years because we're we're good for now. Uh, right. ha- how has has the book been received or at the fine you know the articles and the final touches in the presentation in light of the pandemic? I don't know whether I, I may have missed you on NPR. I apologize if I did, but <laughs> this is a little bit esoteric for NPR. But has right. has there has there been any traction uh, so far? Is it still kind of early days uh, from your writings and what's going on in society currently? Still, still early days and my experience with um, the, I, I don't know if this has been your experience, but I think the pandemic has thrown the academic sort of time frame a little bit out of whack. Certainly for me with two small children, I've not been, <laughs> I've not been doing everything I would have done otherwise, perhaps to, to be out there, you know, speaking about it. So I expect that it will take some time you know, before these insights kind of filter in. And in a way, I'm grateful for that because I don't want to be opining on the future of the welfare state now as things are so much in flux, but it gives me a lot of, I mean, some of the arguments about of the book, especially with regard to the character of different risks, what we know about different risks and how that knowledge ought to influence the design of welfare policy, of social insurance policy in particular, um, those arguments, I think, are very, very much playing out today and will continue to play out for quite some time. So it's given me a lot of fodder for uh, thinking about some of the implications of the argument for the future. And, and are, are you, uh, this is a standard question in the New Books Network, your next project, but they're often follow-on questions, whether in light of uh, coronavirus or not, uh, just having finished this project, where, where are you heading now? Is there another next logical step uh, for this type of analysis? Right. Well, so one of the questions that really does interest me is the, as I just mentioned, the broader analysis of how our knowledge about particular risks affects the design of social policy is a question that I'd like to explore 
in more contemporary and normative terms. So for example, if you think about the risk of unemployment, this might this is a this we know different things about unemployment from what we know about say mortality or even the risk of let's say being born into poverty. So the question of our epistemic um, analysis of these different risks is going to play a role in how we decide to approach them on a societal level. So this is one question that I really would like to As, as employment take up. itself changes. I mean, the days exactly. of uh, blue-collar unionized work were where whatever the risks were, everything was fairly visible. You knew what you were getting into. You knew what your expectations were, both as employer and employee, even if you didn't have the numbers. Those days are really, really over. And now there's just a great de- degree of decision-making under conditions of uncertainty, yes. standard in the financial markets, but also in the labor market. Nobody knows what the labor market's going to look like. So uh, there is a, a wide open space to consider that. Yes, exactly. So this is a question that I plan to explore um, in the future, uh, not just with regard to unemployment, but it, it also has implications beyond the welfare state. I mean, it could have implications for thinking about environmental policy, tort law, or responsibility in tort law. The, the question of, of really how we understand these different risks in the light of probabilistic thinking, um, I think is a very large question. In addition, I'm working on uh, right now more concretely um, sort of a a normative reconstruction of the welfare state. This is a more political theory type of project, but because one of the arguments in the book is that social insurance succeeded because it appeals to sort of a plurality of normative aims, it promotes individual security and distinction while at the same time promoting a vision of solidarity and mutuality, that and it combines these two purposes in uh, a uniquely successful way, I argue, throughout the book. So one of the implications of that is thinking through if social insurance is sort of a value pluralist kind of project, what does that mean for the welfare state as a whole? Can we envision a, a a pluralistic account of the welfare state more broadly, because obviously the welfare state encompasses more than just social insurance policies. So that's kind of the broader project that I've started to work on um, more recently. You, you will face somewhat of an uphill battle in the United States, perhaps more so than in Europe, where the welfare state is, and, and Israel, where the welfare state is uh, uh, accepted as a uh, simply stated a, a, a tremendous virtue, than in the United States, where that is called into question by, by a, a larger number of people, I, I should suspect. Right, right. Well, I try in the book, I mean, I'm very aware of that, and I do try to show, and this is the Aristotelian influence that I uh, got from my advisors, I, I really do try to show that, that social insurance, at least, uh, can and should appeal to both sides of the partisan spectrum. And this is, um, this is maybe why I hoped particularly before the pandemic, but also now after the pandemic, when I think we might be seeing more of a movement towards a kind of pragmatic centrism, I hope that the book will show people of different perspectives that they can find something um, within this practice, within this very central institution that recognizes and furthers their values. I wish you luck with that. I, uh, but it, it will be a struggle. My guest has been Rachel Friedman. Uh, her, her new book is Probable Justice, Risk, Insurance, and the Welfare State, just out from the University of Chicago. It's a very interesting and very important read. Rachel, thank you so much for, for being a guest on the show. Thank you very much for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation.